a passage in First um, Peter chapter two. So, as is our custom, we're going to read God's word aloud together. And I can't find my reading glasses this morning. Signs that I'm losing it, y'all. So, uh, y'all are going to have to do a really good job reading out loud for me this morning. So let's join our voices as we read God's Word. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem. Houses live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you on my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search with me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. And now this is from 1 Peter. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the promises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wanted to know if anybody has visited the Republic of Mausolea in this room. Anybody been to Mausolea before? I wasn't really, I'm not really surprised to read that. Um, Mausolea was founded on May 26, 1977, and it's located in Nevada. And it's what's called a micro-nation. It's ruled by one Kevin Baugh, who is the founder and sovereign. Uh, there's this movement afoot in the United States called micro-nationalism, where people have a piece of property and they declare themselves independent countries 
inside the United States. So a mausolea, uh, you, you can't laugh at this, it's 1.3 acres, but it has its own navy, which is made up of three inflatable rafts. It's got its own postal system, and they have a special Cinderella stamp, stamp you can only use in the 1.3 acres that is Mausolea. It has its own currency, it has a telegraph service, it has a unit of measurement and a flag, an anthem, and national symbols, holidays. It even has its own railroad. It's a miniature railroad, model railroad, but it's a, it's a railroad, and it's visited every year by about 14 people. So, <laughs> big tourism trade going on in Mausolea. Now, if you Google Mausolea, you'll find out Kevin Vaugh, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek about this. This is actually somewhat of a joke about his kingdom, right, his, his sovereign nation that he's founded. But I highlight this absurd little movement because I want to reintroduce how foreign it is when Christians talk about God's kingdom. This is what this sounds like to lots of people. Y'all do what? You're thinking, what's going on? That God has a kingdom? Now, where, where is this place? In some 1.3 acres in Nevada somewhere? Right? It sounds that absurd. And we've been working through uh, this new old mission statement for our church. And today we're going to talk about what does it mean to display God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. What does it mean that Christ has a kingdom, and what does it mean that he's a king? And it feels like, to many people, as abstract and weird as Mausolea. Um, but let's look at these two passages. I had you read two passages this morning, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. And we'll start here. Which of these passages is about the gospel? My guess is that most people would choose the last part of the passage, that last passage, which is from the New Testament book of 1 Peter, where it talks about Jesus dying for our sins, you being brought out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, right? You being made alive. This is what people internalize what the gospel is. The second passage, the first passage we read from Jeremiah is an Old Testament, from an Old Testament book, a letter to these exiles in Babylon. And for many people, that reads like, how do we relate to the surrounding culture? Instructions on how to do that. But which of these passages is about the gospel? And here's my point for today. Both. And I want to think about this. So let me give you a background on the Jeremiah passage. Jeremiah 29 was is a letter that God wrote to the exiles from Jerusalem. Now, uh, in 587... The country of Israel was overrun by the superpower of the day, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. If you don't remember that from history, maybe you do from Veggie Tales, but uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar and his army, had the, the way that they conquered the, the world at the time was they did two things. They would come through a country, and first they would take everything of value, and then they would take every person of value. So they took all the, the money, everything, for, all the gold from the temple, and they took all the leaders of the country, and they left everybody else. But they left an entire nation there without its leaders, and all the leaders were depo deported over a thousand miles away to Babylon. And so what's happening in this moment is the people who are in Babylon and the people who are back in their devastated, war-torn, leftover country are both wondering, where is God? And what is God up to? And, and some of the prophets, actually, at that day, one of them is mentioned here, Hananiah, comes and says, don't worry, guys, God's got this. Two years, it's going to be better. It's all going to be better. 
It'll all be gone. And so part of this passage, it says, don't listen to those prophets. Here's what I'm telling you. This is what God says. And he's got these instructions on how they're to live and make their lives useful and meaningful in the midst of being departed from their homeland a thousand miles away in a foreign country where they're not allowed to worship the way they were before. They They don't have any of the language or customs. Everything has been destroyed and ruined in their lives. And the premise of his message is that you exiles, you will be there in Babylon for 70 years. And you need to come to terms with that fact. And yet, Babylon is not some bad place. It's a place where God is at work. And Jeremiah says something really odd here. He says, who sent you into exile? And I'm sure everybody listening to this letter being read out loud would be like, well, Nebuchadnezzar, hate that guy, right? He's the, wor- he's the worst. But this is what this passage says. No, I, God says, I sent you. I put you where you are, and I have purposes for you there. And this is what it is, summed up in one word. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the, and in Hebrew, it's shalom, the word for peace. Shalom is a word uh, that, of course, is used in Hebrew for a greeting, a hello or goodbye shalom. But it means so much more than what we think of as peace. It means so much more than an absence of conflict. It means universal flourishing, everyone thriving. And, and without an understanding of shalom, this is what really matters for us. This is where this hits us. Because we can live as church, churchy people in a view of Christianity that's got half of a gospel. It's got half of a gospel. Shalom, though, is, and this is what I'm going to push into, is what God is up to in this world. And he's inviting his people to be a part of what, what we're invited to be up to in this world. So let me show you um, how Christians think about the world. So this is an old diagram. Let's see. We've got one more here. Uh, this is an old diagram that was used for years to help communicate the gospel to people. Does anybody know what this is called? The what diagram? The bridge, right? The bridge. And so well, there's, a, there's a big, there's two cliffs. Us, we're on one side, God's on the other. Our sin and death separate us from him. And in order for us to know Christ, know, know God, Christ comes and dies on the cross, and his cross is like a bridge that we can cross over and be with Christ. Now that is true. And that's a great diagram that's been useful for years and years. And yet, that's all you understand of the gospel. That's about half of it. That's about half of it. So, uh, a couple years ago, an, an inner varsity leader named James Chong and, uh, came out with this new illustration. And I'm going to walk you through this. And here's how he, he, he describes it. He says, you know, if you ask anybody about the state of the world today, uh, almost nobody is like, man, it's going great right now. I mean, we're just killing it. You know, I couldn't be any more content or happy about how things are going. Um, they acknowledge um, that the world's broken. It's marked by suffering and injustice and alienation and all kinds of problems. People have lots of uh, understandings about how we'd fix that. But this is how people would understand the world. That we live in a world with, that there is a lot of, uh, that is broken and wrong. And the, the Jews to whom Jeremiah is writing would say the same thing. Our temple's been destroyed we're in a foreign land a thousand miles away where we don't even speak the language. We have no freedom to worship or to go back home. Um, we're living as refugees. And, and Chung then capitalizes on that universal hunger for a better world. He says, you know, that universal hunger uh, 
all the all hungers that humans have point to something that satisfies them. You know, the, the the sense that we're hungry means there's something such as food, or that we're thirsty means there's something such as water. The fact that we long for a better world means that there either was one or there will be one. And this is when he draws another circle. And he, this one represents the good created order of Genesis chapter 1. People living in harmony with one another and with God and with the created order. And that this is how des- things were designed to be. Right? This is how things were supposed to be. Designed for good. And then he asks this question. Well, how did we get from circle 1 to circle 2? How do we go from left to right here? And of course, he introduces the idea of sin and evil. Sin is humanity's fundamentally turning away from God and his ways and setting up the throne, the self on the throne. And once people did that, they began to use the natural world and human relationships. We began to use each other and take advantage of each other. Shalom was shattered and we were alienated from each other. So this is how he describes it. It's not just this sense of alienation. It's that things have been damaged. This is not the world that God made it to be. Damaged by evil. But, this is the next part, God loves the world and people in it that he didn't leave us alone. He, the good news is that God has returned to the planet in Jesus Christ. So the next circle here. Since his son, that's what the arrow represents, coming into this world to die on a cross, his life-giving ministry was one that showed miracle after miracle. This is what I'm planning to do, is restore things for better, to make things right. This is what most Christians would actually describe as the gospel here, restored for better. Um, this is what Peter says in verses 9 through 10. God called us out of his darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received God's mercy, now you have received it. But here's the question. Are we done? See, a lot of Christians would say, yeah, that's it. Look, uh, creation, fall, redemption. Praise God. That's the gospel. But that is not all the gospel. And there's a tendency within the Christian church to shrink God and to shrink the gospel of Jesus Christ down into a personalized, individualized salvation. And if you stop here, this is why Christians are boring to a lot of people. Because we have this great thing that's like me and that's nice for me. And, you know, it doesn't really change anything or anyone. And it feels as culturally irrelevant as the kingdom of Mausolea. And we wouldn't want, actually, a gospel that ends here. I want you to think about this. We wouldn't want something. Um, We intuitively know that there's something really deeply wrong in this world. And would we want a God who simply creates, has a salvation plan that's like a escape hatch for you out of the bad no we want something there's something in us that longs for all things to be made right the best of vacations and meals and times with friends are like tastes of like there's got to be something else behind this so he draws a fourth circle he draws a fourth circle sent together to heal god has begun a program of restoring shalom his son came to put things right and will one day put everything right. And right now, it's the property of the church to be able to embrace this and participate in the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I know when we think about king and kingdom, the, this is a little fresh on our minds, maybe more today than if I'd preached this sermon a month ago. How many of y'all watched the coronation? Anybody watch? No, okay, four, four of you, right? Yeah, 
four of you weirdos watched the coronation. But we all know, like, maybe if King Charles was more exciting, we all would have watched the coronation. <laughs> Hard to get worked up about this one. Um, but it's not part of our lives directly. But, and yet this language is so much part of the church. We pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're praying something about the Lord healing and making things right. So what is, it, what is it we mean when we talk about Jesus and his kingdom? It means that Jesus really is a king. When I first came uh, to Raleigh, I, it was 12 years ago, and the church gave me an iPhone. And so um, they gave me an iPhone that had belonged to a former employee of the church. And so I, I remember uh, what was on the bill was Christ the King, and that's what would come up on people's caller ID. I didn't realize this. So I had several really bizarre interactions with car repair places where, like, I'm calling to check in my car, and you can hear the person pick up the phone and, like, hello? Because Christ the King is calling them, right? This is called to glory. Here it is right now. Um, and, you know, and I think that sometimes it feels funny and weird like that for us to talk about Jesus as a king. To affirm Jesus as a king is not just, it's to say, on the one hand, I submit myself to you. I bow my knee, right? Like what we see happen in Europe that's weird to us when people bow down to a sovereign. This is what it, part of what it means to be a Christian and to have a king as we submit our whole lives. We say, Jesus, you're worthy of all of it, all of my time and energy and imagination and creativity. All of it is under your command and for your use. And the Jews in Babylon, they knew about kings. They knew about kings. They, they had seen the raw power of King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this was not just like, oh, use your imagination for a little bit. Go into the land of imagination and figure out what a king will look like. They knew. But this is what's being told to them in this letter. God is a king way beyond even the power and the glory of King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 4. I have sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God's like, I'm a king even in charge of what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. I'm behind all of it. And Jesus has a real kingdom. If you actually met, met a, a micro-nationalist micro na, at a party, like Kevin Baugh, you'd be like, now, show, like, where's your kingdom? And he could pull out his phone and show you pictures of Mausolea, the 1.3 acres. And, and when we say Jesus is a king and he has a kingdom, we also mean a real place. We also mean something real, not just up in heaven, but here. The gospel of the kingdom is not just about salvation. It's about shalom. It's not simply a collection of individuals who are forgiven, who say, yes, Jesus is a sort of a king over me. It's also a royal nation. We are a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a new society. So this is, what, this is why we think about this, that those images of the fall. You know, if, if the fall has damaged more than just individual people, that what we look for for restoration is more than just a personal salvation, right? It, the effects of the fall are much bigger than sin. If you have a nephew who has some form of physical impairment, if you cut yourself shaving this morning, if you've got a chronic illness, these are all effects of the fall. If fallenness is bigger, 
is bigger than just sinfulness. So redemption has to be bigger than just forgiveness. And his death on the cross and his resurrection, the Bible says, are the first fruits. They're the beginning of what God is going to do in everything. They're the first buds and blooms on the bush and on the flowers in the field of like, this spring is coming and it's going to be everywhere. Right? It's, I borrowed this this week from, um, from Thomas Deschamps. Any of y'all got one of these at home? Some of y'all with little kids? Snow globe, right? Uh, you know, you got one of these, you could shake it up, and it's supposed to show you a magical universe, right, inside, a magical little land. And this is really what it means to be a Christian, for people to be able to look at our lives and look at our churches and say, gosh, look what God is up to. He's creating something beautiful and powerful. You know, this Christmas, we went through the book of Revelation, just really briefly, a little overview of what is... in all involved in the book of Revelation and God's, um, God's pictures he gives us. It's almost like, a, for those of you who have, have had babies, right? You have these pictures that you get, these scans in utero of what the baby looks like. And you're like, Maybe, man, that sort of looks like your nose. That looks like sort of your, your features, right? Even in utero. And that's what the book of Revelation is for us. It's these pre-birth baby pictures of God's kingdom, Remember what we, we read in that, you know, it, this, you're not a chicken nugget. You know, you go to Chick-fil-A, and you buy a pack, a 12-pack in this case, of nuggets, right? And uh, you, you eat the nuggets, and you throw away the trash. Is that what God plans to do with this world? Is he going to pluck all the chicken nuggets, all you out of there, take the trash, wad it up, and throw it away? Or did we read about God is going to make, how he's going to make all things new? He's not just going to rec- rescue chicken nuggets. He's going to make it all new. And kingdom work, then, is bringing the future reality of what God is doing into the present. It's showing off, as far as the curse is found, that new heavens, new earth, all things new in the now, in the right now. This is the only way that God's instructions to these people living as exiles in Babylon make any sense at all. Listen to verses 5 through 7. Build, plant, have families, increase in numbers, seek the shalom of the pagan city to which I've called you. Even pray for the shalom of Babylon. Strive for flourishing for everybody, for all the boats to rise up because the water level's raising. You know, we want, like to think of God who gives us comfort in the midst of the storm of this world. But what if God is in charge of the storms? And what if part of what it means to be a Christian is to see the, the, the weather change? You know, God's mission in our world is not just our comfort or even our little kingdoms, but his kingdom. You know, I wonder how the refugees in Babylon would have heard this letter. I'm sure it would have been bizarro. We lived in Philadelphia for 16 years, which is a city full of large immigrant populations that settle in different neighborhoods and therefore have different neighborhood identities. Now, those, some of those are disappearing over time, but they still have a flavor to them. Large cities have, uh, have little, little Korea, you know, they have little Chinatown, they have, you know, a Ukrainian district, they have an Italian market, you know, they have these little areas. And refugees go into a city, into a foreign place, and they build a little microculture, a micro nation that is what it was like overseas 
in this place. And yet, God is telling these refugees to do the exact opposite. Be a part of everything. Infiltrate everything. See, if you, you have, think that God only cares about the church in the world, then God's call for the shalom, to seek shalom, to pray for the thriving and flourishing of everything, makes no sense to you. But this is where it gets confusing to us. I, I want to just remind you of the difference between, and the lines, there's some lines between the church and the kingdom. The church and the kingdom are not interchangeable terms. This isn't the kingdom of God, right? The church is the people. God's kingdom is his reign and rule. The church is not all there is to the kingdom of God. Rather, the kingdom of God is all the realm where God is at work through his people in the world. Very famously, Abraham Kuyper, who was prime minister of the Netherlands in the first part of the 20th century, he said this, he said, there's not one square inch of territory in this world over which Christ cannot say, mine. Not one square inch that's like apart from his reign and rule. So the world is supposed to see in us what family life and business practices and race relations and arts and interpersonal relationships can all be in restored beauty under the kingship of Christ in all parts of life. So where is God's kingdom? Yeah, it's, church is part of it. But thank the Lord, it's not all of it. It's how God's people are work all the time, in all the places you are, all through the week. Here's how the church relates to the kingdom. This, this gathering is like home base. We come back here to get uh, re-encouraged, to connect together, to remember, uh, oh, this is what we're about. This is how God's at work in us. This is how good God is. We come back together, we're reminded this is kind of base camp for the, for the kingdom. The church provides an impetus for the kingdom. We train up uh, people to go out and encourage you. Um, but you don't either live in home base or you never need it. You come back to it. So the kingdom is God's people permeating the world in every sphere of human existence for God's glory. It's never just inside of us. It's never just inside of us. It's, um, I'm using that word permeate really intentionally because it's not conquest. It's not uh, a fight. It's not triumphalism. It's loving engagement with all the parts of the world. So the church, we have a, a limiting factor on what we do. This is part of my job, right? We, we make disciples and we train people. Um, and that's what the church is supposed to do. But the kingdom, that's what we're supposed to do. And, and it's, that's so uh, limitless and encouraging. If Abraham Kuyper is right, if there's not one square inch where God can't say, mine, right here, mine, um, then we can't leave an inch of our lives without asking God to fill up these parts. So the things that you do for your job, nine to five, is that part of the scope of kingdom work? is when you go in and you work with in, in, in all the different places that you work, with all the people you work with, your work is so important to the Lord. It really matters. Um, in your neighborhood, in the way that you relate to the people and the apartment next to you, is that a place where God's at work? Yeah, that too is part of his kingdom. So kingdom work, let me remind you of this. It's everything from like the grandiose stuff we hear of in churches like William Wilberforce overturning the, the slave trade and AIDS medicine going to Africa and um, medical care in low-income communities and ESL programs. It's all those things. 
But it's also taking care of your elderly neighbor. It's being a, a great employee it, when you don't have to. It's loving the unlovely. It's forgiving your mom. It's bringing those kids that drive you nuts next door to church with you. It's growing a garden. It's running for office. It's creating beautiful art. It's being part of the neighborhood watch in your neighborhood. Uh, if, if, there's, if you're like, I don't know where kingdom work happens in my life, you don't have to look very far. And one of the things I love about this congregation is the creativity and the imagination. I mean, I hear stories of the ways that God is using you for things that aren't just explicitly about conversion and prayer. Those are, of course, things that we really believe in. But even just the way that you do your work, the way that you care for people. See, if Christians think all they do is just go to church, then churches think all that we do is stay in business. Churches usually care about measure effectiveness by three things. Do you know what this are? I'm sorry, this is a, this is a pastor thing. Butts, bucks, and buildings, right? How many butts we have in the seats? How many bucks we have at the bank and our building? And I just don't think that's how God measures the effectiveness of his church. Right, that's, I mean, what a, what a sad measuring stick. If that's what you think, if that's what churches think we're about, you know, it's like we're all playing Game of Thrones, right? We're all fighting for who has the biggest kingdom. I just don't want to play that game. I don't think we want to play that game, do we? I mean, there's so much that you're involved in day to day. And I just want to push on you to ask the question, as far as the curse is found, where is God giving me opportunities to show forth his rule and reign in this place? Where, where do I have a chance to do that? When we embrace the gospel of the kingdom, amazing things can happen. So this is why part of our mission statement says, displaying Christ's kingdom in our lives. And, and I want to give you two words in closing to, to help you remember what this is. Two words, different and difference. Different and difference. So different. Listen to Peter. How does he call the church to live? If you look in this passage, he says this. Calling you to live as sojourners and exiles. Literally resident aliens. And then he has a command attached to that. So then he goes on to say, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Now, when Christians hear that, we always think of sex for some reason. But that word, actually, in the Greek, just talks about over-desires. Over-desires. And, and, and what I want to point about, the ruling desires, and it really comes down to the question of, like, what do, you, what do you want out of life? What are your ultimate desires for this life? If I surveyed this crowd, this is what I think, if we were doing uh, Family Feud, right? This is what I think the top five answers would be. I think it would be something like this. Safe schools, a great neighborhood, meaningful relationships, financial success, rising property values. Right? Maybe something like that. Some version of that. Um, and, and if I went and did the same thing in Raleigh, we were like preparing for family feud, you know, and I did the same survey in Raleigh. You know what I think that the top five answers would be? Oh, I think they'd probably be safe schools, great neighborhoods, meaningful relationships, financial success, and rising property values. The same. So here's my question. Do we want anything different in life than just people who don't know Jesus as a king? Do we want something more? Are we different? 
Do we live like aliens and strangers in this place? Or do we have d- deeper desires and bigger longings because we have a king than just for me? You know, all of you who call yourself Christians, you could say, like, there was one time in my life where this world felt like home, but now you're the reason that you feel a lot of times weird and never really quite at home here is because this isn't your home. Right? God has designed you for a new heavens and new earth where he's going to live with us in perfect harmony when everything will be restored. And so it's just not going to work, y'all. It's not going to work all the ways that we want it to work and, and, and feel work. And so like, my, my urge to you is, can you lean into some of that and long for something bigger than just for stuff to work, for a parking place at Costco, Right, for the little things we're like, oh, this made by day, like in a little way. But like longing for something deeper. Is there anything different about from you than your neighbors? Is there anything deeper? You know, there's a way in which our lives should not be entirely logical to people around us. They should look at us and go, like, you know, there's a lot of things I really like about you, but you're just a little weird. Because you don't seem like you entirely fit. You want stuff that's not just for you. Different. Different and difference. Well, some of you might say, wait, but doesn't Jeremiah tell them to do every, the things that everybody else does? Build houses, plant gardens, marry in Babylon. It sounds like they're supposed to do everything the same as everybody else. I'm glad you noticed that. I'm glad you're paying attention. Look at verse 10. He says, when 70 years are over... Uh, in Babylon, I will visit you all, fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. And so this pe- these people are told, you got 70 years to live in Babylon, and I want you to build houses and build vineyards that you're not going to live in and the fruit of which you're not going to harvest. I want you to live here like you're here for forever, knowing that you're not. Now, I want you to think with me, what is 70 years? 70 years, biblically defined as a lifetime. Psalm 90 says, Lord, teach us to number, of, to number our days. You've given us maybe 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. That's a lifetime. That's your lifetime. My dad is 76. This is his, probably his last year. You know, I, I, all of us have a number. You don't know it, but you have a number. And I, I want you to think about that number. You know, You have 70 years here. How will you spend them? Do you want this to be just about you? Or is there a bigger kingdom that God is inviting you into? A bigger view of the world. You know, to live as people who are different, who make a difference. This is why Peter says, conduct yourself in a way with Gentiles, non-believers, so that they may speak against you, but will nevertheless see your good deeds. They'll look upon you and say, gosh, you know, I don't really like all the things you're about, but man, I can't help but notice. Different difference. God seeks to reconcile all things to himself. This is what he's going to do. He's going to make all things new. We've been been saved to be able to be invited into, not because we have to, because we get to, be a part of his shalom work in this world. Our mentality should therefore be this prayer. Lord, would you make me useful? Where you've put me, where you've put me today, with the people you've given around me, in the context you've given me, would you make me useful? 
See, here, here's my last push. We are the plan. Now, I don't want to put too much on us. We don't have to do anything. We are saved by, entirely by grace. And we can be chicken nuggets if we want to. But I think the Lord is inviting us to something bigger and deeper and wider than just our own flourishing. But raising the